new with us, we're looking at uh, selected psalms during uh, Advent. This is our last one, Psalm 144. Pastor Donnie told me he never heard a sermon preached on Psalm 144, and um, uh, that mine would be the best he's ever heard. Uh, and so I haven't either, and so I was looking forward to what I would say uh, uh, today. Um, and if you're new with us, we draw you into this. This will conclude these psalms. Uh, Christmas Eve, we're going to look, Lord willing, at Isaiah chapter 9. And then on Christmas Day, Colossians chapter 1, before jumping back into Luke. And so let's pray together as we look at this great psalm. Father, we thank you for your word. I'm reminded of the Lord Jesus who said, If you abide in my word, truly you are my disciples. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Today we want to abide in your word as your disciples. And we pray for the liberating effect of your word in our hearts. That you would free us, not for sin, but from sin for service, and for worship. Come and do that work as we study your word in Jesus' good name. Amen. <clears throat> I haven't been able to uh, play golf since September, but at least I'm going to end the year on a high note. I played in a golf scramble this past September, and um, if you're not familiar with golf scrambles, it, you just know it's very encouraging uh, for those who aren't very good. Uh, because the way this particular scramble works is the way other scrambles work. We had four guys on a team, and uh, each person tees off, and then you play the best shot until the ball goes in the hole. And you get only one scorecard per team, not four scorecards, but one scorecard. And it's really a dream for those who aren't very good, like myself, because if you're on the team with someone who's really good, their score counts for you. So, for example, Pastor Kent, who is very good at golf, shot an eagle on one particular hole. And I've never shot an eagle. I've seen an eagle, but I've never shot an eagle uh, my entire life. And you know what? That day, I shot an eagle, right? And I got to uh, walk around all day telling people, shot 17 under par today. The way I like to say it in a scramble is if they shot it, I got it. And it's like that with our union with Christ. Jesus' victory is our victory. His performance counts for us. What is true of Christ is true of his people. What is true of the head is true of the body. And a dominant theme that we've been looking at in these Psalms is how the people's blessing is bound up with the king's victory. And that's here as well in this particular Psalm. It's really the main idea of the Psalm. Victory for the Davidic king means blessing for the people. And for us who are in Christ, the victory of Christ means blessing for us. As Paul said in Romans, by one man's obedience, the many are made righteous. We have the right man on our team. As we often sing around here, as he stands in victory, sin's curse has lost its grip on me. Our blessing bound up in the victory of Jesus Christ. So this psalm, which speaking of David in its original setting, pointing ahead to uh, David's final heir, the, the Lord Jesus Christ, and all the blessing that comes to God's people as a result of their union with him. Now as you just take a quick survey of Psalm 144, you might look at it and say, haven't I seen you before? You seem familiar. And that's because Psalm 144 is uh, a beautiful mosaic. What I mean by that is David is drawing from previous psalms, most noticeably, Psalm 18, which is one of the reasons I want to do Psalm 18 and Psalm 144 in this series is, is because of that connection. So, for example, verse 1 combines Psalm 18 
18.34 and Psalm 18.46. Verse 2 um, is similar to Psalm 18, verse 2, and Psalm 18, verse 47. And there are many other allusions to Psalm 18 that we looked at previously. But there are other psalms as well that David is drawing upon. For example, verse 3 is found in Psalm 8.4. That's where we're most familiar with that uh, phrase, right? Uh, what is man that, that you regard him, that you think of him? And verse 4 is like Psalm 39, verses 5 and 6. And so Psalm 144 that we're looking at today is sort of like a psalm gumbo. Doesn't gumbo sound great? Sounds great to me. Um, that, that David is just bringing together these various psalms, putting them all together. Or you might think of this like... Uh, if you've ever seen those videos, uh, people call them sermon jams, where you take a pastor's best sermons and then uh, you like put it to music, uh, and, and so you've got like Alistair Begg with hip hop behind him, uh, which which is quite fascinating. Um, that's David. It's like his sermon jams. It's like he's bringing some of the best of the Psalms, bringing them back in here to Psalm 144. Or probably a better analogy is is the way musicals sometimes, like uh, Les Mis or, or Hamilton, will bring previous lines and previous melodies back into later songs. David is doing that like the maestro, drawing upon these previous psalms, adding some new stuff as well, but he's using some of these, these older lines, these older verses, in order to prepare himself for a new battle. You see, it's not that David just ran out of material, so he started repeating himself, but rather he's bringing it together because he has a new battle in front of him. This is not the only psalm to cite other psalms, of course. This happens in other places. Psalm 108 combines two halves of two psalms. That's all it is in Psalm 108. And it's a good reminder for us that we need to continue to revisit verses and passages as we continue to face new battles and undertake new gospel ventures. We will never exhaust Scripture's ability to be applied and applied again and again to new battles in every season of life. In fact, yesterday on uh, social media, I, I quoted something from Second uh, Chronicles 20, where Jehoshaphat prays, Lord, we are powerless and we do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. And a member commented, I've read this verse a hundred times in the past six months. Just coming back to it again and again and again, and that's what David is doing. He's coming back to some of these key ideas that he stated in previous psalms in order to inspire praise and prayer and get his mind and heart ready for a new battle. Now, as you look at the, the whole psalm in its entirety, you also notice a great diversity in subject matter. He uh, first praises God for military skills in the opening two verses. Then he pauses to reflect on the frailty of humanity in verses 3 and 4. This is followed by his prayer for God to come down and intervene in his life. And then in verse 4, he vows to sing a new song to the Lord, should the Lord intervene in the way he's just asked. And that then concludes with a statement about the peace and flourishing of the faithful. So there's a lot here, but it is really a psalm of praise and prayer in light of a battle that's coming uh, to face the king and how the people are blessed when the king is victorious. So we'll look at it in two broad parts. First of all, verses 1 to 11, the king's battle and victory. And then verses 12 to 15, the blessings that come to the king's people. Okay, so first, the king's battle and victory. He begins by praising God, doesn't he? Blessed be the Lord my rock, who trains my hands for war and my fingers for battle. 
Blessed be the Lord. This was Job's great declaration. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. He praises God for being his rock. Blessed be the Lord, my rock. This image of stability and protection. This is what we need when everything seems to be unstable, when we seem to be vulnerable and exposed. He praises God for being his rock. We have a great rock. Not Dwayne Johnson, the rock. He's a pretty spectacular beast himself. (laughs) There's that line in the movie Hobbs and Shaw when the lady says, did you bring the Calvary? And he says, woman, I am the Calvary. (laughs) But we have a better rock than the rock. We can call upon our God who is our protector, who gives us stability, and who is with us. And he praises God for training his hands for war and his fingers for battle. Another reminder to us that life is filled with battles, but we're not alone. David knows that Yahweh was his personal trainer. He had prepared his heart for battle. He had given him the skills necessary for battle, and God had done this for him. I was talking about this text this past week when I was in Dubai. I had a crazy injury. I had to go to the emergency room. My finger got infected, and it was really swollen and had to go get it drained. It was, it was quite wonderful. Uh, but the guys were quoting this verse. He, he, they said, he, he drains my finger for battle. <laughs> now David fights his battle, you see all the way through this psalm, with the power of Yahweh. He's giving credit to Yahweh for the training, for the equipment, for the protection. Like it's, his success is owing to God. Now I was reading a, Spur- a Spurgeon sermon on this text, and it's interesting he applied uh, this idea of, of training his fingers for battle uh, to, to those who in his congregation worked with their hands. And I thought that was, that was fitting. As he says, let us bless Yahweh for anything that he has made us efficient. And he recalled how the, the people who built the tabernacle were particularly gifted by the Spirit with those skills necessary to, to build that. And so whatever skills the Lord has given you, Let us bless the Lord for giving them. He goes on to praise the Lord for his strength, his love, his deliverance, and his power in verse 2. Notice how he mentions God's steadfast love, his loyal love. He says, he is my steadfast love. Translated in another translation, he is my loyal one. And that's what made the difference for David. It was God was faithful to his promises. He was faithful to David even when David was not faithful. One uh, female writer writing about Advent had a piece where she asked the question, who is the best looking man in the Bible? And she says, put your money on King David. He's got it all. He's handsome, glamorous, a lion on the battlefield, and a brilliant musician. But then she said, yet as you know, David's family was a mess. Let that encourage you especially if your family is a mess. His own son tried to kill him and usurped the kingdom. David's life at times was a mess, wasn't it? Yet through this one, the Messiah would come. What made the difference was not how good David was, but how faithful God was. He is my steadfast love. You see, David didn't have it all together when he's writing these psalms all the time. He didn't write these songs detached from a world of sin and suffering. For David, who's about to face a battle every new season, to say that God was his steadfast love, his fortress, his stronghold, his deliverer, that was his very life. 
This wasn't mere happy God talk. This was his survival. It was his hope in life and death. And when we read the Psalms, we read them with that sense of, of, of urgency and desperation as well, don't we? God, you are my steadfast love. I don't have a steadfast love outside of you. You are my refuge. I have no refuge outside of you. You are my fortress. You are my deliverer. He recognizes that God would protect him. I don't know if you have any valuable possessions that you do everything you can to protect. If you've ever seen the Mona Lisa in the Louvre, you know it's, it's hard to steal. It's, it's protected, right? And God will protect his promises. He's going to protect his anointed. He's going to protect the promises to David until they are fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And he says, God has given me the victory. He is my deliverer. He's the one who subdues peoples under me. This again in the New Testament, this language is picked up to speak of Christ and his reign. And so just notice here, before we move to the next uh, couple of verses, David is, begins the psalm by reflecting upon the attributes of God, who he is, and the promises of God. And that is what stimulates praise to God. So when we see statements about the character of God, when we see promises of God being made, let it also lead us to worship. Anyone ever get frustrated when you're at a stoplight and the light turns green, but the person in front of you doesn't go? What do you do when that happens? It's a good icebreaker question. Do you A, honk? Do you B, say, get off your phone? I'm probably more of a B. C, say to God, Thank you for working patience into my life. <laughs> Do you reflect philosophically? How is it possible for the person to be unmoved by the green light? Well, next time that happens, remember this. The attributes of God and the promises of God are green lights for worship. We should never be unmoved by the promises of God. We should never be unmoved by the attributes of God. Instead, let it lead you to praise the way it's leading David to praise here. Well, that then leads David to think about the frailty of humanity. It's like he's thinking about the, the majesty of God, and then he reflects on his own life, and he begins to ask these very honest questions. What is man that you regard him? Who are we? A son of man that you think of him. While we're, we're like a breath. Our days are like a passing shadow. This, the beginning of this is taken from Psalm 8, 4. It's, what is man that you're mindful of him? And we know that while mankind is the pinnacle of God's creation, being created in the Imago Dei, that we're also frail. We're also but a shadow. As Psalm 39, 5 says, we're like a breath. I don't know if any of you went walking early this morning, but you could see your breath this morning. It was cold this morning. And David says, my life is like two of those. That's how quick life goes. And he says, why are you mindful of us? You who are eternal, who are self-sufficient, who need no one or, or nothing, yet he is. Our God is mindful of us. He's concerned for us. He cares for us. And this life, though it's a hand breath, that could discourage us. We're reminded, though, that heaven is not a hand breath. It's forever. And all who are in Jesus Christ have that life. And we know our God is concerned for us, despite our frailty, 
Because Jesus Christ came into the world for us. The ultimate display of condensation, condescension, that Jesus Christ, it's been a long week, Jesus Christ, he's, he's our condensation. Uh, perspiration. Uh, meditation, I'll quit. Um, we say to Jesus this Christmas, who are we that you would think of us? Yet that's what he's done. He's demonstrated it by the cross. That's the real Christmas tree, the cross. Every blessing is under that. Who are we that you're mindful of us? Well, praise be to God. Now, why does David note that here? As I said, I think he's talking about the greatness of God, and so he's now thinking about his, his own frailty. But he's about to ask God, you'll notice there in verse 5, for something. And I think David is, is kind of saying something along the lines of, I don't want to take your help for granted. You don't owe me anything. You're God, I'm not. And yet I need you. He understands his limitations. I mean, this is a great warrior, like the writer said. I mean, David had it all, a lion on the battlefield. And yet David realizes he cannot win in and of his own strength. Paul Tripp in his book, Lead, asked the question, if you could have a superpower, what would it be? And he confessed to his own shame. He said, I wish I had the power to create 10 days in one week. Like we just don't want to admit we have limitations. He notes limitations of gifts, time, energy, maturity. You see, because we have limitations, we need God. We need God to act. We need God to intervene. And that's what he does next. He asks God to rescue him. And you notice this language is very similar to Psalm 18. But in Psalm 18, David is thanking God for doing these things. Now he's taking that thanksgiving part of that psalm and making it a request. Basically saying, do it again. As he says, bow your heavens, O Lord, and come down. Touch the mountains so that they smoke. An echo of Psalm 104. Flash forth lightning and scatter them. Send your arrows and rout them. Stretch out your hand from on high. Rescue me and deliver me from many waters, from the hand of foreigners whose mouth speak lies, whose right hand is a right hand of falsehood. Notice the active verbs there. Bow. Come down. Flash forth. Scatter. Send out. Rout. Stretch out. Rescue. Deliver. It's a plea for God to intervene. Have you ever prayed like that? Let me encourage you to pour out your heart like David's doing here. If you have a battle right now, bow your heavens, O Lord, and come down. I prayed that for a friend this week. This psalm was on my mind. Pastor at the church at Redeemer in Dubai. Pastor Dave has a nerve disease, and he lives with chronic pain in both arms. It's excruciating, and he was telling me about how many people take their life uh, because of this chronic pain. We went to get lunch. I had to carry his tray. I had to open his bottle of water. And God uses him despite his weaknesses. And I pray, Lord, bow your heavens and come down. Intervene in the life of this brother. Let me encourage you not to hold back in prayer for God to intervene. Again, David could just say, God intervene, verse 10. But he uses this striking language to help us to imagine, help us to think. Help us to, to remember that this is Exodus language. This is Sinai language. This is the God who did that in Exodus. God, would you do it again? He likens his adversaries, you notice there, to many waters. Water being a place of death, of chaos, of fear, 
My enemies are causing me to fear. They're making me anxious. And you notice he, he speaks of these foreigners. This is not like ethnocentrism. He's speaking of enemy nations. Notice what they're doing. They, they shake hands with their right hand, but they don't mean it. Their right hand is not a hand of fellowship. Their right hand is a hand of falsehood. And those who have been dishonest, those who have lied, they're like a, a raging storm to David. And we too have these sorts of trials in our lives. Indeed, we have an enemy, the, the evil one, who lies to us, who wants to devour us. And in these moments, we cry out to God, just like David. So he then goes from this request for rescue to a vow of thanksgiving. Notice verses 9 and 10. And so you catch the flow here. He says in verse 1 and 2, God, you're awesome. Verses 3 and 4, it's amazing you even think of me. Verse 5 to 8, help me. 9 and 10, if you do, I'm going to sing a new song. If you do, I'm going to have to use Walter's language from last week. I'm going to have a praise break. I have a friend who uses this phrase all the time, and it always is accompanied by a dance. I'm going to have a praise break, he says. And David says, I don't know about you, but if you intervene, God, I'm going to break out the 10 string. That's the kind of praise break I'm going to have. He says, I will sing a new song to you, O God, upon a 10 string harp. Is that what you think about when the good times are rolling? A, a, a 10 string harp. <laughs> I will play to you. He says, God, if you intervene, I will give you glory. And I love this picture because David has just asked God to help him in a battle. And he's already seeing on the other side of the battle, praising God. Every new battle brings the possibility of a new song. Every new battle brings the possibility of a fresh testimony to God's faithfulness and intervention. David's already envisioning singing a new song. That is a song that will be composed in light of a particular experience. That's a phrase that's used a lot in the Psalms, isn't it? A new song. Psalm 40, he says that the Lord rescued me, put me on a rock, and he says he put a new song in my mouth. Why does he praise? He repeats this. He gives victories to kings and he rescues David from the cruel sword. Plural kings. He has a history of saving his kings. Why? Because he's made a promise to David. And even when these kings were whack and wiling, he always kept a lamp in Jerusalem. And so there's great stories of rescue, whether it's Jehoshaphat or Hezekiah. And the idea that David has in his mind here is that, God, you have a history of rescuing your people, a history of rescuing leaders Please do it again. Verse 11, he repeats this request of 7 and 8. So not only has David repeated previous psalms, now he repeats the same psalm. <laughs> Rescue me and deliver me from the hand of foreigners whose mouths speak lies, whose right hand is the right hand of falsehood. He knows that God is a rescuing God. And we're reminded today that God has rescued us not only from something, but for something. He rescued us from sin, rescued us from punishment and judgment and he's rescued us for service and worship that's the good news of christmas isn't it that jesus christ came into this world and rescued us last week walter mentioned the the great uh, illustration of katrina when that guy came on a rescue mission to rescue some someone who was was about to drown some of you may remember back in 2018 the thai youth soccer team that got uh, stuck in a cave they went exploring they're only going to be there for an hour they thought and a monsoon came and they got stuck in this cave with their assistant coach for two weeks 
and the Thai Navy SEALs eventually were able to go into these caves. They were buried like two and a half miles into the cave and rescue each player and the assistant coach. Can you imagine being stuck in a cave for two weeks and how much you would love those Navy SEALs? I bet you'd send them a Christmas card, wouldn't you? You, you would name your kids after those, those Navy SEALs. And Jesus Christ has come in to the darkness, into the depravity, and he's rescued us. And David says, I need you to do it again, Lord. Paul noted how the Lord would rescue him time and time again. Listen to 2 Timothy 4, verse 16. He says, at my first offense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them, which is a sermon in itself. And he says, but the Lord stood by me and strengthened me so that the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. And the Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and will bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. That's the promise that we have today, saints, that the Lord will rescue us and bring us safely into his heavenly kingdom. Let's give praise to God for that this morning. Well, finally, verses 12 to 15. The king's battle and victory then leads to what David says about the blessings coming to the king's people. And he basically says that if the king wins the battle, every imaginable blessing is going to come. And the vision is so great that it carries a vision of, of eschatological shalom. That is, it's so idealized, it's so remarkable, that these things can only really fully take place in heaven. And of course, as we've been saying, all the types and the shadows of these psalms are pointing us uh, to our king, the Lord Jesus, and all that is said about Israel, Israel being uh, the land being a type, a shadow of new creation to come. When Jesus Christ comes and reigns, when he comes again for his people and we enjoy a new creation, we will enjoy blessing that uh, we've never experienced before. You see, being united with Jesus Christ means the best is still yet to come for us. Notice how David is describing it in his context. May our sons in their youth be like plants full grown, our daughters like corner pillars cut for the structure of a palace. So he begins with the children. And he says, may the sons be like plants. May they be plants full grown. That is, may, may our sons be strong, spiritually strong. And may they bear fruit. And may our children, or our daughters rather, be like corner pillars cut for the structure of a palace. May their godliness be beautiful. The word palace here it probably should be translated temple. It's the word for temple. And I say should because I think it, we're drawing here on what was said in creation. You've got plants, you've got the tree of life and so on, the garden, beautiful garden, and the temple, the temple containing all those images of the garden, both symbolizing and, and contain the presence of God. May our children enjoy the presence of God. May they bear fruit as they uh, enjoy God. And also whispers of new creation when all of God's people are gathered together in worship of our God. He then goes into speaking of other blessings that would happen should the king win a battle. May our granaries be full, providing all kinds of produce. May our sheep bring forth thousands and ten thousands in our fields. May our cattle be heavy with young, suffering no mishap, or failure in bearing. So you notice here, when the king reigns, he's saying that fear is removed, humiliation is removed, peace and glory are experienced. And this is where all of history is headed, to total shalom. 
You notice the effects of the fall that, that David is praying against. Failure in bearing. A cry of distress in the streets. Right now, this is a present-day battle. Every day, there's cries of distress in the street. Every day, there is a failure in bearing. But one day, that curse will be reversed. One day, there will be no more wailing in the streets, no more bloodshed in the streets, no more pain or grief, loss and tears. And those people, he says, verse 15, are blessed, happy. Blessed are the people to whom such blessings fall. Blessed are the people whose God is the Lord. There isn't blessing outside of this God. There isn't happiness outside of this God. The blessing comes from knowing this God. And even if you face trials in this life, another writer, Habakkuk, would remind us that he's still worthy of our worship. When Habakkuk basically describes the worst here, when he says, though the fig tree should not blossom, nor there be fruit on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. What do we do? Habakkuk says, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. You see, we all have a though. Though this, though this happened to me. Though I be dealing with this. But not everyone has a yet. Yet I will rejoice. Though suffering befalls me. Though I have this challenge and this trial. Can you say, yet I will rejoice in God. Blessed are those people who can do that. Well, we recognize this morning that Jesus Christ is the final heir of David, and he has won the battle for us that we could never win for ourselves. And he will come again to reign in power and glory. And because of the king's triumph, a triumph that is not in question, we too will triumph. And we look forward to the day in which there are no more cries in the streets when Jesus comes to make all things new. As the king goes, so goes the people. And our king is alive forevermore. And we too will be alive forevermore. And that's really good news on hard days, isn't it? That's really good news on, on dark days, on cold days. It reminds me of the line, The Witch in the Wardrobe from C.S. Lewis's uh, allegory as he's describing the frozen kingdom of Narnia that's in the grip of the wicked queen. She turns her enemies to ice and rules them with terror. But there's a rumor that one from the outside, Aslan, the Christ figure, the true king of Narnia, who hasn't been seen in years. There's a rumor about him, and the rumor is this. Aslan is on the move, and perhaps has already landed. And with that promise, everything in Narnia changes. The creatures of Narnia are emboldened as they're seized by hope. The queen's days are numbered. And my friends, Christ has landed. He is on the move. And he will come again. And with that promise, everything changes. May we be seized by that hope today, knowing that our enemy's days are numbered. Our king is victorious. And all who are in him are blessed forever. Praise God for our king. It's good to be the king's people. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We pray that by your Holy Spirit you would apply it to our hearts and our lives that we may be changed. Deepen our gratitude and our joy today as we ponder what Jesus has done for us for the union we have with him. We thank you for uh, his performance 
We thank you for his resurrection, his return, and the blessings that befall the people of God who are in him. And we know this didn't come without price. We know that Jesus suffered on our behalf. And now as we take the Lord's Supper, we're reminded of what the Lord has done for us and all that he has for us in the future. And I pray your people would express heartfelt thanks to you this morning, Jesus, as we consider all that you had to suffer to give us all of these blessings. And we pray this in your good name. Amen.